the root of good messaging is not telling people what you think, but understanding how they feel. Telling people what you think is nothing. Understanding how they feel is everything. Too many politicians and too many consultants and too many operatives just want to tell people what they think. You've really got to understand what's in the gut. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. Going into the election last November, many Democrats expected Joe Biden to win the White House, to flip the Senate and expand their majority in the House. Biden did win the presidency, narrowly, but they needed a historic win of both Georgia Senate runoff races to take the Senate and hold on to a razor-thin margin in the House. So, even after taking control of the White House and Congress, Democrats have been asking themselves what happened in 2020 and what they need to change to stay in power. I'm excited to unpack these questions with former Congressman Steve Israel, who spent 16 years in Congress representing New York's second and third after redistricting congressional district. From 2011 to 2015, he served as the chair of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, also known as the DCCC, which many of you have probably donated to. He is currently the director of the new nonpartisan Institute of Politics and Global Affairs at Cornell University. Steve, it is wonderful to have you here in studio. Thanks for making the time for our listeners today, and welcome to Politicology. Oh, Ron, it's such a thrill to be with you, and thank you for inviting me. This is going to be terrific. President Bill Clinton once described you as one of the most thoughtful members of Congress, which I think makes you a perfect guest for the show. Have you been watching Congress? (laughs) (laughs) The the bar may not be all that high, my friend. (laughs) So I want to talk about the actual nuts and bolts of how the DCCC works, and we're going to do that in a Politicology Plus segment after. But part of what I'm really excited to talk to you about today is this focus on the balance of power in the House. So you're not looking at the DCCC at every single House race, but you're trying to win a majority and set the agenda. And you can't set the agenda if you don't have a majority of seats. And that really is the backdrop of this whole conversation. So there's this saying in politics that all politics is local. And it used to be true. (laughs) But our information environment now seems to be one where all politics is national, and there are a lot of factors for it. So, you know, the decline in local news, more uh, national political news, uh, increased donations and social media, increased online donations, I should say. How do you see that broad shift impacting elections? Let's just start there. Sure. Well, I can give you very specific examples. I chaired the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee from 2011 to 2016. Nancy Pelosi chose me uh, as chair the the function of the committee is very simple, very simple mission, beat Republicans. That's it. Win the majority. And the magic number is 218. And so the job of the DCCC is to recruit candidates, is to fund candidates, is to help candidates with message, identifying uh, vulnerable Republicans, et cetera. Now, when I first accepted that position. And you never accept a position from Nancy Pelosi. It's just <laughs> given to you. And you just say, yes, you ma'am. You say yes. Yes. Uh, so when, uh, when I started, uh, our campaigns were fairly conventional. So you did all the kind of conventional elements of running and winning a campaign. But just in the four years that I was chair, by the time I left, if you were not focused on social media, you were going to lose. If you were still thinking that you could win a campaign with direct mail, you were going to lose. 
if you can figure out how to permeate your electorate in non-conventional ways, you are going to lose. One of the most important elements of a campaign when I left became Facebook friends. Hmm. Identifying people on Facebook who would support a candidate and asking them to contact their friends on Facebook to do endorsements. <laughs> Everybody thinks about endorsements, that. right? From, you know, if you get endorsed by Barack Obama, you're in good shape. No, no. If you get endorsed by uh, Mary Jones, mm. right, who is your across-the-street neighbor, mm-hmm. right, uh, then or is an across-the-street neighbor, then the person that Mary is communicating with in, on Facebook is more likely to say, yeah, I'll vote for that candidate because Mary likes that candidate. So social media and technology has completely revolutionized the message environment, changed the technologies, and changed the entire tactical and strategic approach towards winning campaigns. Yeah. How did you think about recruiting candidates to run in different districts? And and, and how did you balance community appeal and the ability to fundraise nationally at that point? And I'm sure you know that's changed dramatically since you were there. But it wasn't that long ago. That was 20, 2015 when you left? Yeah. Yeah. 2016. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, no, you're right. 2015. Um, look, I'm, uh, I'm going to um, cause some consternation for some of your <laughs> that's listeners. That's what we're here for. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to agitate some folks, and I apologize in advance. But now that I'm out of Congress, I can agitate away. <laughs> well, this is what I love about this conversation. You don't have talking points you have to stick to. Yeah, so I'm liberated. This is, this is great. I'm liberated. Um, look, again, the job of the DCCC is to win. Nothing else matters. To win. And if you're going to win, and you're going to get that 218 vote majority, and you're going to put that gavel in the hand of a Democrat and set the agenda for the Congress, mm-hmm. then all politics is local. Because mm-hmm. you've got to recruit candidates in different districts, in different media markets, maybe with different ideologies who have local appeal. Mm. So when you recruit, you don't find somebody who's necessarily going to be a good soldier for the Democratic caucus, but somebody who knows how to win in that district. The difficulty, and and you know so much about this, the difficulty for Democrats is that they have such a diversity of districts to get to 218. There aren't enough blue urban districts to get to the majority, which means for Democrats, you must win in purple and even red districts. And the only way you can win in a purple or red district is to be a little bit to the right of where most Democrats are. And so you have to recruit to the right, you have to recruit to the left. And that causes a lot of tensions yeah. uh, in uh, w- among many Democrats. Yeah. So this is a theme we've talked about uh, a few times on on the podcast. Just the the you mentioned diversity, um, the the Democratic coalition. I like to describe is just a lot more um, uh, difficult to hold together than the Republican side. No question. Right? So um, so let's lean into that. There's there's this introspective report um, out recently. It was meticulously researched and written by three prominent Democratic. Uh, organizing groups that you'll know well, Third Way, the Collective PAC, and the Latino Victory Fund. And they look at what happened in 2020, where we saw Democrats running for Congress who underperformed Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. And they did so in large part because of Black, Hispanic, and Asian American voters who voted for Biden but didn't vote for down-ticket Democrats. Right. So two of the main takeaways in this report, and I want to take them one at a time, but here's what they were. Um, 
One was that these voters are persuasion voters, what we call persuasion voters, meaning that Democrats can't just assume that they're going to vote for Democrats because of the color of their skin. Uh, and these voters need to be persuaded. That's why we call them persuasion voters. Right. And one of the other takeaways was that Republicans' attempt to brand Democrats as radicals worked. Yes. So I want to talk about these independently, and let's take the first one first. How do you see Democratic organizers and strategists modifying their approach to campaigns to win over voters of color? And we should offer as a backdrop to that question that we know these voters have been trending away from Democrats, while more educated, white-collar, business-friendly workers, uh, uh, voters trend away from Republicans and toward Democrats. Mm -hmm. Well, look, this is not binary. It's not that the Democrats can win with one or the other. You've got to win with both. And so here's the analogy that I use. There is a Brooklyn, New York. Everybody knows Brooklyn, New York. And in Brooklyn, New York, represented by Hakeem Jeffries and Didi Velasquez and others, uh, it's important to appeal to your base, to your democratic base, to reflect uh, an ideology that is progressive and consistently progressive. And we win in Brooklyn, New York. There's also Brooklyn, Iowa. Mm. And Brooklyn, Iowa is a red Republican district that sometimes will go with a moderate Democrat. What Democrats must do nationally is win both Brooklyns. If you only win one Brooklyn in New York and you can't win the other, you're going to lose. You don't get to 218 and you don't elect a president. You're going to lose in the Electoral College. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and you may even lose the popular vote. So Democrats have to find a way in every element of campaigning, in message, mobilization, and money, the three M's of a campaign, in every element of those campaigns, Democrats have to find a way to appeal to voters, persuasion voters in uh, Brooklyn, Iowa, and turnout voters in Brooklyn, New York. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll come back to that in a minute in, in, the, in, the, in the appeal. I want to ask you about the second piece of that. Why do you think Republicans were so successful at branding Democrats as radicals? Because Republicans are better than Democrats at message. It's that simple. And there's a ton of data on this. This is one of my favorite subjects. I obsess over how people make political calculations. And anybody who really wants to understand this should read this book uh, called Enchanted America uh, by a uh, professor at the University of Chicago named Eric Oliver. Now, I represent Cornell, so it's quite hard for me to talk about <laughs> a book published <laughs> by uh, the University of Chicago. But what, what he says, and I think it's, it's absolutely true and explains everything about American politics, the American psyche, and campaigning, is this. There are two ways in which we make judgments. We use uh, rational thought, the prefrontal cortex – and we use emotion. Mm -hmm. Now, in the old days, we used both when, when trying to reach a rational conclusion. You looked at kind of data, you watched the news, but you also had a gut instinct. Now, particularly because of social media and congressional gerrymandering, we live and think in two distinctly different bubbles, rationalists and intuitionalists. Intuitionalists, they, they, they factor out data. They don't even want to see it. And this is not pejorative, yeah. right? I mean, we all have yeah. to have that. Intuitionalists make gut, have a gut sense. If I take this vaccine, uh, there's going to be a chip somewhere in my body, yeah. right? Um, intuitionalists tend to consume vitamin supplements more than rationalists. 
it, which is why uh, uh, Glenn Beck, one of his yeah. biggest sponsors, are vitamin supplements. Intuitionalists uh, believe more, more in the paranormal than rationalists. So they think with their gut. Rationalists just think with, you know, their, their, again, their prefrontal mm -hmm. cortex, right? The dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, if you want to get specific. <laughs> and they try and kind of factor out fear and emotion. You know, they, well, just give me the facts. This is why, I know this is long-winded, no, but no, this is great. Question. This is great. This is why when Democrats message, they talk about their 28-point plan. And when Republicans message, they talk about defund the police. Yeah. When Democrats message, we talk about the latest statistics that we receive from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and the United Nations. And when Republicans message, they say they're going to increase your taxes, they're going to cut the military, they're going to make you less safe. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Are you Republicans yeah. speaking five words that get to the gut? And Democrats like to cite footnotes. And this pandemic of misinformation that we're in right now, mm -hmm. the consequences of that accrue to Republican benefit, right? I yeah. mean, if you, I mean, if Democrats are making logical, rational, intellectual arguments about why they'd be better suited to government and Republicans are using emotion, the fact that most people have declining trust in sources of information that have long been credible, all kinds of institutions, all that is going down. It just means that people are going to trust their emotion more, don't you think? Yes, and this is at the root of, of the, the dilemma that we have, and yeah. it is a very dangerous dilemma. Uh, if you look at it, the 9-11 attacks and the 2008 meltdown, economic meltdown, changed everything. It traumatized the American people. Suddenly, the institutions that we trusted, banks, which were always very oh, yeah. thrifty, right? Now they're greedy. Uh, we trusted the military, which is still, it is the last institution left that has widespread support. But less than it did after 9-11, suddenly we're exposed to all of these dangers and traumas. If you take a look at the uh, kind of media environment mm -hmm. in that time, we always had trust and faith in our religious institutions. Mm -hmm. But then you have pedophile priests, right? So we have less trust. We had trust in sports, right? You would yeah. go to games because that's where you could kind of suspend all the tension. But then you had Deflategate and players on steroids. We had trust in the media. Uh, in my day, it was Walter Cronkite would tell us what happened. But now with tribalized media and bias confirmation, we don't trust it as much. Yeah. So all of these institutions, including government, we used to have, back in the day, people put pictures of Franklin Delano Roosevelt in their living rooms. Oh, wow. Right? How many people have pictures of Joe Biden in their living rooms right now, right? So government has lost trust mm -hmm. and faith. When those institutions are battered, you are more susceptible to misinformation. That is why QAnon has become such a threatening and pervasive institution. It is giving people information that they cling to because they have no validation elsewhere. Yeah. I mean, QAnon is a virus. It's an information it's virus horrific. that continues yeah. to mutate with every input. With every new argument, it sort of mutates around it. It's My friend uh, and your friend, Congressman Adam Schiff, mm -hmm. um, just told me, uh, just before we uh, taped this podcast, I, I was with him, he did a book signing recently, 
in California, and he was protested by a QAnon crowd accusing him of drinking Christian blood. Oh, my God. Now, the accusation is horrific, but he said there were just a ton of people on the street outside a bookstore accusing him of this. This is pervasive. It is poisonous and exceedingly dangerous. Yeah. I mean, and just to go on a detour about QAnon for a minute, since you brought it up, I mean, that the story of QAnon also is so... Uh, revealing about us as as humans and as Americans because it it sort of lays bare all of the other systemic problems that we have, yeah. whether it's you know a crisis of mental health uh, or or um, you know the the national security implications of this, right? Weakening the bonds that hold us together. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so many consequences to it. That, 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 you know, who is Q really doesn't even matter. It doesn't, exactly. doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I just, with that mm-hmm. as a backdrop, we're talking about winning. Yeah. <laughs> we're talking about how bad Democrats are at messaging. Mm-hmm. How do you see them overcoming this? Because this, this the trends that you've just so mm-hmm. well articulated, again, all accrue to the benefit of the people who know how to use emotion effectively mm-hmm. in, in their advertising and 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 in their messaging strategies, and Democrats just don't. Yeah. So what do they what do they got to do? Well, first of all, here's the good news: Joe Biden is the president; he's a Democrat. Nancy Pelosi is a Speaker of the House; she's a Democrat. Chuck Schumer is the Majority Leader of the Senate; he's a Democrat. Mm-hmm. The good news is that in 2020, 2018, and through 2020, a significant majority of Americans yeah. said enough is enough. Yeah. We're voting for yeah. for people we may not even agree with them, but they're normal. <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll just vote for normalcy, right? Yeah. Uh, in 2020, so I um, I have the um, the feature or flaw of being friendly with many Republicans, yeah. including people who served Donald Trump and uh, folks who worked at the highest levels in the pre- in the Trump White House um, would tell me that uh, President Trump's gift was his ability to tap into anxieties. The flip side was he did it to such an extreme that in 2020, people voted against him, not because they disagreed with him, but because they just didn't want to see him on television for four more years. Mm. They didn't want him in their living rooms for four years. This is, this is I'm not saying that all of the Trump uh, administration folks are un- are unanimous on this, but several have said, "Look, Joe Biden didn't. First of all, Joe Biden didn't win the election. <laughs> but, <laughs> but if you want to argue that he did win the election, he didn't beat Donald Trump. Donald Trump beat Donald Trump, and it wasn't because his policies were bad. It was because of Trump fatigue. Well, that is true. Donald right? Trump did beat Donald Trump. He did beat. I Donald mean, th- Trump. This, we talked about this at the Lincoln Project last mm-hmm. year. If if Donald Trump had simply gotten on a stage and said, wear a mask, we different, wouldn't be sitting outcome. here right now. We, 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 this, yeah, totally different outcome. Totally different if outcome. If he had just said that. Mm-hmm. Literally, folks. Yeah. That's how close this yeah. was. Or if he didn't tweet so much. Yeah. And, you know, I I can tell you that the senior officials in the Trump administration, who I cannot name right, right now, uh, they tried to control him. They, you know, they tried as hard as they could. They would say to him, every time you tweet, we lose points. Stop tweeting. He couldn't control himself. By the way, bad quality for a president of the United States. Yeah. Lack of discipline. Very bad. But um, that's how pervasive it was. Yeah. I mean, that tendency is exactly what we exploited with mm-hmm. all of those ads. But, um, to, to your question yeah. about what do we do? Yeah. 
So what I think Democrats should do is exactly what the Lincoln Project did. Okay. Democrats have to learn how to message innovatively, how to tap into emotion, right? And you were part of that. You understood that you can't make a rational argument against an irrational president. You have to make an emotional argument against an irrational president. And you did that. And I think that's a model for democratic success uh, in, from every district, from in every uh, level of government, from the local board of elections to the presidency. Yeah. Well, I, I would love to see Democrats do that. Yeah, <laughs> I would really love to see Democrats yeah. do that. That's actually a really good segue to, to the next piece of this conversation. So one of the things we've talked about on the show a lot is the ideological diversity within the Democratic Party. Lene Erickson from Third Way, who's become a great friend, uh, has talked about the Democratic Party as roughly evenly split between more liberal voters, moderate Democrats, and more conservative Democrats. Mm -hmm. And David Shore, who I'm sure you're familiar with, one of the left's wonderkind data scientists and former Obama guy, says that the future to governing majorities is bleak unless Democrats win back lower socioeconomic voters. And he notes that if you look inside the Democratic Party, there are three times more moderate or conservative non-white people than very liberal white people. But very liberal white people are infinitely more represented. That's morally bad, but it also means eventually they'll leave. The only way out of this, he said, is to care more and cater to the preferences of our lower socioeconomic status supporters. And he also notes there's a chasm between the people who run and organize and strategize for Democratic candidates, the consultant class, if you will, and actual the reality of the Democratic voting coalition yes. across the United States. Yes. Now, I can't think of anybody better situated to talk about that because when it comes to winning, you've got to be – you have to be – on the same page as us right now, right? Mm -hmm. If you're going to design a strategy to convince these voters, wherever they may be, whatever constituency you happen to be appealing to, you've got to accept reality in the way that we're talking about it right now. And my fear, going back to Democrats getting better at messaging, is that they just don't or that the consultant yeah. class is just out of touch with that you're, reality. Well, I don't know if the consultant class is out of touch. If you have a good local consultant who understands local sensibilities, you've got to, you know, that, okay. that's going to work. But yeah. I, I would say two things um, that I think are critical to, you, to the point that, that you and others have made. One is that the root of good messaging is not telling people what you think, but understanding how they feel. Mm -hmm. Telling people what you think is, is nothing. Mm -hmm. Understanding how they feel is everything. Too many politicians and too many consultants and too many operatives just want to tell people what they think. You've really got to understand what's in the gut mm -hmm. to be an effective messenger. This is why Bill Clinton was as extraordinary as he was. He was just walking empathy. He could look at you and understand what was mm -hmm. troubling you at that moment and focus on that one thing. Mm -hmm. and, and give you his 22-point plan, by the way. <laughs> if you wanted but, it, yeah. If you wanted it. But Clinton was amazing at opening the door. right? And there's a, by the way, there's a wonderful formula that we can talk about that yeah. I try to share with my colleagues on – on how to message, you know, one-on-one. -on -one. So Clinton was great at opening the door. Once the door is open, then you can begin filling it with kind of more rational mm -hmm. uh, discourse. Um, so understand how they feel. Don't preach them about what you think. The second point I would make is you just gave me a form of PTSD because I would, as the chair of DCCC, find myself in beautiful, beautiful 
condos and homes in the Hamptons, you know, these palatial estates in the Hamptons, and these towers, glittering towers in New York City, where the floor was so expensive, you had to take off your shoes before you walked in, right? Because I didn't want scuff marks on this wood imported from, you know, What's the point of a floor? If, if you, you can't, can't walk, walk on, on it, it. <laughs> right? right? Um, and and, and I, would, I would stand there and listen and I'm going to get myself in some measure of trouble here. I don't want to offend any of... of, of, of We've already done it, Steve. Okay. <laughs> I'd listen to these donors who would write $100,000 checks, $50,000 checks, $5,000 checks. Tell me what the message should be mm -hmm. in Omaha, Nebraska. What the message should be in Laredo, Texas. What the message should be in Orange County, California. And... I mean, that's that's the chasm right there. <laughs> and it How do they know? <laughs> and it manifests as a little tug on the blazer. Let me pull you aside. <laughs> this is what you got to do. Yeah. This is what, yeah <laughs> How well, many times has you, have you had that whisper? <laughs> in New York, there's no such thing as a little tug. It was like, <laughs> grab my arm <laughs> and fling me. To, and this is what you got to do. You're missing the message. You have to tell people how crazy Trump is, yeah, right? Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> you know, you have to you have to give people statistics. I once had a, I once had a guy a country and I knew I knew he was in trouble because he had a big thick notebook, and he said, "I'm going to tell you what the message should be." God's honest truth. He said, "I have data on economic performance in every Democratic Congress versus Republican Congress since the 1950s. It's clear. It's clear that the economy always does better when you have Democratic majorities in the House." And he had graphs, and then said. This is your message. Could you imagine? That, I mean, that's a real good bumper sticker. Binders full of data. <laughs> that's you know, it's that's tax and spend. Say the Republicans, but a graph from 1956 <laughs> to 2018. Just put is this our on message. the TV. Yeah, that'll right. do it. Yeah, man, yeah. man, man, man. Uh, you know, you said something really true about messaging about a good message, a good ad mm -hmm. is one that communicates what someone is feeling with words that they didn't have before. Exactly. Um, which I think is exactly why morning in America worked so well because, and that was, that was the first ad we ran that Trump like responded to, mm -hmm. right? Because it gave voice to what people were already feeling. We, we didn't tell them what to think. It wasn't, here's how you should be. It was, this is this is what we're all experiencing right now, right? This is like mm -hmm. we're on the same page, right? This mm -hmm. is bad, and like we can yeah. all agree. It was like, oh man, it's like a pressure release valve. Mm -hmm. That's good advertising. That's good messaging. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm sort of desperate to see Democrats uh, do that mm -hmm. for reasons that we'll discuss in a little bit. But for, really, for the sake of democracy, that's the one. That, if I'm a single issue voter, that's my issue, right? And nothing else matters unless we get that sorted mm, exactly. out. So, oh, man. This challenge seems really difficult, um, and when you float it on Twitter, people really don't like it. Um, and and I just I want to offer a little bit of hope because um, you know to the to the Democrats listening, and there are lots of them mm -hmm. um, who are all very concerned about democracy. And you know I don't know if they're single issue voters too, but what what hope would you give them in terms of the the machinery of the Democratic Party getting its shit together? Mm -hmm. And learning how to appeal to people and not be so sort of, you know, uh, controlled by an increasingly fringe left. I, I'll, I'll say it. That's mm -hmm. that's what it looks like. All the headlines that I see on, uh, especially on Republican media, 
it's all the crazy, it's like fuel, constant source of fuel from the fringe left of the Democratic Party that ends up manifesting in lots of really good emotionally driven advertising. Yes. And well, they're giving, um, we get that the fringe left among Democrats is giving the radical Republicans a lot of fuel yeah. to message back. And I can tell you, I talked to my former colleagues, you know, Congresswoman Cindy Axney in Iowa. We're still over one year away from the midterm election, and they're spending a ton of money against her in her district. It's as if the midterm election was this November, not next November. And every time there is a message that the right believes can be destructive yeah. or resonate uh, or unpack some vulnerabilities, they're in there. Uh, and the Democrats have a three-vote majority. Yeah, Three vote yeah, majority. you wrote about this so, in, in your in your piece recently, which was actually fantastic. Well, on the thank Hill. you. Yeah, it was, it was great. So um, you can't afford to lose, Cindy Axney. You can't. You cannot win by losing. You cannot yeah. add by subtracting. Yeah. And so what? What I'm look. I do have hope because I believe that as we get closer to the midterm election and the prospect of Donald Trump running again, which I believe he is. Yep. Agreed. As we get closer, Democrats will get into more of a survival mode. And make concessions, yeah. you know, on both sides and do what is necessary to keep the majority. Now, if they, because this is what they understand, Ron, if they lose the majority, the final two years of the Biden presidency will be subpoena after subpoena after subpoena. Yeah. No governing. No, no governing. Nothing. Just everything that will make this administration look bad. So you can forget all of the progressive priorities that many of us have. You can f forget an expansion of Medicaid. You can forget investments in climate. None of that is going to happen if the Republicans win the majority. And because of that, the progressive left and the moderate right in the Democratic caucus in Congress, I believe, are going to come together and, and have an accord, a grand bargain, let's win Brooklyn, New York, and let's win Brooklyn, Iowa. I sure hope so. Yeah. Because, because like you said, if they, don't, if they don't pull this off, it is, for, as far as the eye can see, it is a wasteland yeah. in terms of victory. So- if you, this is by the way, um, this this you know the difficulty of sort of branding the Democratic Party, something that John Favreau has talked about mm -hmm. about, um, uh, and he, he with focus groups in the wilderness, it's something that uh, that post election analysis looked at. So, if you were the the emperor of the Democratic Party and you were in charge of their message and their strategy, how would you construct a national brand for? Democrats right now, if, 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 if you could just do whatever you want, how would you, because, because again, to my point about all politics being nationalized now, you got to have a national brand. What, how would you, how would you create that? What would it be? So I'm not sure I agree with you okay. that you have to have a national brand. Okay. I have a counterintuitive view. Okay. It may not be right, okay. but Let's it's counterintuitive. It. Because the Democratic Party is so diverse, because you have to win in districts that are almost diametrically opposed ideologically, there should not be a national brand. Everything should be local. Every candidate should have his or her own local brand to win. When you get a national brand, you're giving certain voters an excuse to leave you. And so I think of it, uh, you know, in this advanced age of communications, this may seem a little anachronistic, but in the old days, if you drove across the country and you had an uh, FM radio, you know, sometimes you'd hear country music and sometimes you'd hear NPR. You didn't hear your podcast at the time, <laughs> but sometimes you would hear heavy metal. You would hear different things from your radio based on the media market that you were driving through. Mm -hmm. That didn't mean that everybody had to hear 
NPR, or Country Western. I liken democratic messaging strategies to that. Let local Democrats play what people listen to in their media markets. Okay. Then when you come to Washington, yeah. you don't need a national message. You need a national platform. Okay. Then legislate. Do what Democrats have done, actually, in the past year or so, year and a half. Pass relief. Pass uh, uh, the expansion of child care tax credits. Give people what they need to survive and prosper. Provide for free community college. Your message will take care of yourself when you win and govern in a way that restores people's faith in you. Okay. Counterproposal. Okay. <laughs> you should have a national brand, but it should be what you just described, meaning we're a big tent. Mm -hmm. We're diverse. There's room for you. That's that, that. I mean, that is what you're describing. That's what the Democratic Party. That's what the brand should be. There's room for everybody here. We're we're the inclusion. Big, we're the big pent. We're the big tent party now. Right. We're inclusive. Right. You belong here. Mm -hmm. You don't have to agree with everybody else in this party. Yeah. You you can be part of this thing. That that works a hell of a lot better than the radical Democrats, which is what you got now, and that's yeah. thanks to the right. Right. I mean, that's yeah. that's. No, I I, th I think you're right about that. But the message, as, as you know, it loses credibility yeah. when people see some some Democrats in, implying that you're not part of us, that you can't be with us, that you have to pass an ideological purity test yeah. to be accepted. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we, we Democrats have a tendency to figure out how to step on our own message sometimes. <sighs> All right. Let's— um... It's a good thing there are no sharp objects at this table. <laughs> <laughs> We've uh, let's talk about the culture wars a little bit. We've seen the culture wars in full force, um, from the fighting over allowing trans kids to play sports to the fights over mask mandates and teaching about slavery and racism in schools, especially during the Virginia governor's race, which is happening in the backdrop right now. We have talked recently about how that race, uh, you know, the Virginia governor's race can be a place for parties to test election strategies for the midterms. And, you know, is it a bellwether? Isn't it a bellwether? What actually should we be watching here and how much, you know, stock should we put in the results? How do you see um, those issues, the cultural issues playing uh, playing out in the midterms? And I know we're, a, as you just mentioned, we're a year out from that. Um, how much stock do you think people should be putting in that? Well, Republican re consultants, uh, the folks, yeah, let's say the folks. The I mean, the people who are designing yeah. the message, the strategists, they will make a determination as we get deeper into the cycle on what blend of messages works the most. And so, right now, the Republicans are sadly horrifically doing a very good job exploiting fear with culture wars, exploiting fear by talking about these immigrants who are have caravans and are storming across the border. Uh, to infect us all with COVID, uh, you know, and, and to take your jobs away. That's, uh, that's a very effective message when people are uncertain, you have a pandemic, the economy just doesn't feel like that, you know, it's solid under your feet. Well, it's weird. Whatever's it's happening weird. is yeah, yeah, weird. Yeah, so when people feel a weird environment, that's when these culture wars work best. And so the Republicans are going to pursue that. But I can tell you, having talked with them, that they also have in mind uh, really focusing on inflation. So if the Biden economic program is causing a significant increase in inflation and that inflation is permeating electoral attitudes, it's going to be about inflation. 
it, now, and this, this is the thing about message. Whether or not it's true. Whether or not it's true. Yeah. But this is the thing that I find so fascinating and also troubling about message. First, it doesn't have to be true, mm-hmm. right? And secondly, um, it, it can sound far-fetched a year and a month before the midterm election, but in a year from now, it could be what everybody is feeling and thinking. So the Republican strategists, if, if they have nothing else, if the economy is doing well and COVID is over, it's going to be about the, the classic and conventional reasons that you should be afraid. Yeah. They're going to raise your taxes. They're going to defund the police. They're going to cut our military. Um, but if inflation is, is up, uh, if people are concerned about debt, uh, then it's going to be calibrated uh, in, in that direction. Message is about two things, time and calibration, yeah. right? Yeah. So you got to tap into something that people are feeling at the time, and you've got to calibrate it to cause emotion. Yes. If it's inflation, mm-hmm. that's a double whammy. I mean, it's the economy and it's fear and it's yeah. bad. It's just really bad. And I saw a poll uh, four days ago now that – and Frank Sadler, Charlie, uh, Carly Fiorina's chief of staff, just made this point that it doesn't really matter what the level of inflation is or if it's going up. What matters is if people think it's going to go up. That's exactly right. And as of right now – uh, I think it's 70% or 80% or somewhere in between there, 70% or 80% of respondents believe that things are going to continue to get more expensive over mm-hmm. the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. That's not a good sign. No, it's not a good sign. And it is exactly why the Democrats in Congress, my former colleagues, need to be able to find consensus to pass economic policies that the president can sign that will mitigate inflation. Yeah. And I hope that we get to that point. Yeah, and make that a part of the messaging, like That's not exactly just not right. just yeah. do it, but say yeah. we're concerned about this too. Yeah. We want to keep inflation low. Mm-hmm. We like that's why we're doing this. Well, here's another uh, kind of troubling uh, trend. We are so polarized right now in this country that um, if you are a Trump voter, no matter what the reality is, you're going to believe that the reality is bad. Yeah, and if you are a Biden voter. No matter what the reality is, you're going to believe that the reality is better. This is a 50-50 country. Or actually, let me say 45-45, right? It's the 10% that have not yet made the judgment that are at the center of gravity. Mm. And whichever party can grab that 10% with good messaging will win the midterms and likely win the next presidency. My view is Democrats need to learn how to get that 10%. Yeah. Here, here. Uh, okay, let's zoom out a little bit. Sure. Uh, because the only way we get to continue debating uh, and compromising on, you know, how much to spend on this program or that program uh, is with a healthy, functioning democracy based on classical liberal values and a pluralistic society. But 2020 feels like a narrow escape. Um, like we lived to fight another day because the margins were so narrow. And personally, I believe January 6th was just the beginning of some very dark stuff ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, right now, all I can think about is this Tucker Carlson trailer for the documentary that mm-hmm. he's about to drop on November 1st, which is a complete fabrication, but probably going to be a masterful piece of propaganda mm-hmm. that mythologizes the insurrection at the Capitol. And, continues to bolster the alternate reality that Republicans are living in. Mm-hmm. They're going to create a home there. <sighs> What's going to be the path forward from here? 
Uh, deep meditation, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> now, look, I'll, uh, I have, uh, to, be, to be perfectly honest, short-term pessimism, long-term optimism. Okay. Okay, Hit so let's, let's take the pessimism. Yeah. Um, I don't know that there's a way out of this immediately. I believe that we now have a, an electoral system where you have illiberalism on both sides. You have an illiberal left and an illiberal right. Uh, and they are pulling both parties further and further to the extremes. The center is not holding. And when the center doesn't hold, you don't have a functioning democracy. So I'm very deeply concerned. When you add to that uh, how easy it is for people to consume complete fabrications, some written uh, you know, by uh, internet uh, analysts in St. Petersburg at the Internet Research Agency in Russia, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, how easy it is for Tucker Carlson to do a Goebbels-style film to create a, a completely incendiary yeah. fantasy. Yeah. I worry about that. Uh, and when you have a Congress that is now as polarized as ever, like, largely as the re- as result of, of gerrymandering, uh, and and other social media forces that is now a Congress where you have two you don't have a Republican and Democratic Party you no, have two different have worlds two, you yeah. have two different worlds you have two different worlds yeah and so you know a Republican who who is in a Fox News district and a uh, a progressive who is in a Rachel Maddow district they look at each other and they're like you are not even from this planet and both of them both of those members of Congress believe that they are absolutely right and the other is alien. In that kind of setting, I don't have a lot of hope that we're going to resolve these differences uh, in, in the near future. Here's my reason for optimism. Okay. I run the uh, Institute of Politics and Global Affairs at Cornell University. I teach one of the easiest courses in the history of, <laughs> of college. It's a course that explores the intersection of politics, film, and popular culture. And I teach every Thursday morning. And when I teach those Cornell students, and this isn't just about Cornell, and I see in them that the re- on both sides, conservatives and progressives, the rejection of where we are now, the refusal to accept what is happening. That this is the best we can do. Right? The, uh, you know, they, 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 the challenge that they have accepted to do better, I am convinced that we're going to have a, a decent uh, trajectory. We just may have to wait five or 10 years for them to run for Congress, get in Congress, run for local office, become the media consultants, run companies, and reshape the, uh, the democratic agenda. Okay. I feel good about it. Okay. I'm, I'm um, breathing a feel sigh better? of really, yes, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> what would you say to our listeners um, you know, what the, the question we get asked all the time, all the time, is what can I do? Mm-hmm. And, you know, right before an election, the answer is vote and help your friends vote and get, you know, that's that. And then after an election, the rote answer is call your congressman, call your local representative, find out who they are. And those things are useful, mm-hmm. right? They do, they do move the needle. They do help. Um, and especially figuring out who your very local representatives are, whether it's your school board member or your city council member. Like as Jed Bartlett, my favorite president would say, all the <laughs> governing that actually matters to people happens at the local level yeah. uh, that actually touches your lives. Um, and I find that to, you know, 
offer a little bit more control over over mm-hmm. the experience that you're having. What kind of advice would you give to people who are you know, listening to, to us right now are sort of bracing themselves for the next five to 10 years um, and want to help, want to do something? They don't yeah. want to look back four or five years from now and think, well, I didn't, I, you know, I didn't mm-hmm. help mitigate that disaster. And yeah, what do you, what well, do you say to Well, let's take this analytically, diagnostically, and with yep. precision. Great. So what do we do? Number one, you have to get involved in these midterm elections. Yeah. Go back to what we said before. The Democrats lose the midterms. It does not create a good narrative for a Democratic president. It opens the door for a second term of Donald Trump. And so my first bit of advice would be find a way to get involved in a very competitive district. And involved could mean sending $3, mm-hmm. right, to the Democratic candidate every time, every time you can. Or going and canvassing door-to-door in that district, wherever you may be, find the closest competitive election in the midterm and work it. Mm -hmm. Don't allow the door to open to Donald Trump in November of 2022. That's number one. Number two, longer term, use the entrepreneurial skills that you have and the technological platforms that we have to build new coalitions. Coalitions are the new grassroots movement in politics. So when you can find like-minded people who can engage people who may not be as like-minded, but you can find one area of agreement and create a synergy that opposes the disinformation that we have, do it. Find ways of doing it. And third, and I think uh, you know, just as important as, as the first two, would be if the biggest challenge we have to democracy is disinformation, mm-hmm. and, I, and I believe it is, I think so too. then we've got to figure out a way to counter disinformation. So when you see something or read something that a friend has posted, right, mm-hmm. um, t- tell them why they're wrong. Mm-hmm. Do what you can to counter disinformation where you can. Now, that's not going to change the trend, but it will at least make a contribution to getting us back to fact-based discourse. Yeah. Yeah. But remember, do it in a way that is going to resonate. Yeah. Not with a 42-point plan. Not with a 42-point plan. Right. I would I also want to ask you about mm-hmm. this. Um if you're a you, you mentioned, you know, donating to, to democratic candidates for example in the midterms, um I want to talk about primaries for a minute mm-hmm. because this might be uncomfortable for some listeners to hear, especially the more progressive listeners, but if you are in a moderate district or a competitive district, I would suggest you look at the profile of your district. And figure out what electability looks like mm-hmm. for the Democratic candidate. And if you've got multiple candidates in a primary uh, and this is going to be a very tough race, consider supporting the one who can win. And even if you might feel you're to the left of them, I think yeah. electability needs to be an organizing principle for Democrats in competitive districts. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And it was a, a, a major source of frustration for me when I was at DCCC and now for – uh, my successors, the current chair of DCCC, again, it's about winning. If you look, if you want ideological purity, I respect it completely. But if that ideological purity puts you in the minority, understand that it's going to be Speaker Kevin McCarthy or Jim Jordan or Jim Jordan, <laughs> and it will be President Trump. Yeah. And what do you gain in, in your beliefs? Being right. Right. So you, so you may be right, but, but I, I was in the minority. You know what you do? It's like you're picking little dust mites. That's what you. That's how you spend your time, picking little dust mites out of the air because <laughs> there's nothing else that you can do. Yeah. 
So by insisting on that, on that purity, it may align with your core values. But if it's not about winning, I'm sorry to tell you, then your core values will be good theory, mm -hmm. but not governance. Yeah. We've got to make sure that we're governing. Okay. Uh, I want to be mindful of our time. Uh, and before we go to Politicology Plus and talk about the sure. guts of the DCCC, which I know our listeners will love. Brace yourself, folks. <laughs> Brace yourself. Where can everybody find you on the internet and follow your work? Uh, sure. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, I am at uh, repsteveisrael.com. Uh, you know, I've written two satires. I have another book on the way. I'm now opening up uh, my own independent bookstore in my hometown of Oyster Bay. Can't so that's theodoresbooks.com. Uh, and, and, you know, just please, I, I, I love what you do. Uh, and I hope that your followers and listeners will contact me personally because I, I love being out of Congress and not having to speak in sound bites <laughs> and really having conversations with people. It's so liberating. It's terrific. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. You can support the show by joining the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist and look further down the road than everyone else and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. You can unlock this premium content at politicology.com slash plus. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. Even if we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.